Okay, I'm going to do a little note to the listeners here. I might put this at the beginning. What's the note? Well, we're, you know, we're about to start talking about um, the schedule and how it's spring break and I've got to get out of town and right. we're going to be a little bit late next week for getting right. back in town. We've got some guests that we've been trying to schedule. We're going to talk about that in a second. Yeah. Um, and I think that stuff will stay in. I don't have a lot of time to edit the show this week. Okay. So, you know, there might be a few sniffles because Joe's sick, as we're about to talk about as well. There might be a couple of coughs and there might be some dead spots. You can hear, this is, this is oral argument unplugged. I was going to say naked, but that's weird. Yeah, that's a little... No, no. This is oral argument unplugged. Correct. Yeah. A real rough. Yeah. A real rough lack of a cut. Yeah. That's a, unplugged. You know, it's like you got your, this is the acoustic guitar version of it. <laughs> you, you think I should go with it that way, right? I do. You think I should just get out of, I should just like ship this thing, get out of town. I do. Yeah. So that's it, gang. So uh, any uh, apologies in advance for um, if it sounds a little bit rougher than usual. We don't edit all that much. In this case, I thought we could just get it all out and it'd be fine. But there are a few dead moments. Yeah, it's going to be the way it is. Here we go. On with the show. Are we recording? Yeah, how are you feeling? You have a new guest. My <laughs> name is Lauren Bacall. <laughs> almost, almost canceled this week. Because of my voice? Yeah, I mean, you're sick again. Yeah, it's not like that. Last time I had a fl- like a flu kind of thing where I had a fever, I had aches. This time... Yeah, what kind of new and exciting ailment do you have this time? Yeah, well, it's like a throat thing and a sinus thing. So, like, I'm congested. And then when I get up in the morning, my voice is just gone. And then it comes back slowly. Lost my voice on Thursday. Mm-hmm. Got one class. So, so we didn't record yesterday. Right. We usually record on Friday we get, we, and we just turn that thing around and we get it right out to the listeners, hopefully right. for their drive time, exactly. drive home or their commute Couldn't home, train ride, whatever. Week. Couldn't yeah. do it. No. No. Um, and, and I wasn't going to – the thing is I didn't want to risk some kind of permanent vocal injury that would sideline you from the show. Yeah. I mean this is – we right. got So So you were at home – or, or wherever you were with like like lemon tea and various kinds of like um, vocal masseuse kind of yes rehabilitation things. Yes, I was using an herbal wrap, uh, which is convenient because by masseuse's name is actually also herbal wrap. So either way, I'm using herbal wrap. So we delayed a day. Yes. Uh, so it's Saturday. Normally we would record on a Friday. Right. But that doesn't mean, just because you're ill, just to be clear, doesn't mean that you're not going to bring it today, right? Oh, I'm going to bring it. I'm, <laughs> you can call me Lozenge Fury. That's my new nickname, Lozenge Fury. Now, there's something else special about this uh, episode. By the way, I'm not a huge fan of the word lozenge. I'm just telling you, that's what they are. And yeah, I, well, you know. You know, I could call wor- it halls. Words can be, no, 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 no brand names. No buzz, uh, buzz marketing. That's a, that's a Hodgman thing, isn't it? I, know. I agree with that. I, I do too. Because we're not going to give them that kind Paul's of... Paul doesn't sponsor this show. No. If they did, we might. Joe's expletive deleted. Oh, jeez. <laughs> you have to uh, cut that out. Yeah, right? I have to cut that out. This oh. isn't the other show. Seriously? The other show, I'm not going to cut stuff out. All right. Um, so, so a couple of... Uh, a couple of announcements. Okay. Housekeeping. Boy, this is, <laughs> this is <clears throat> scintillating. Really I sound is. a little bit like... I don't know. I... I'm with it. I'm We're not, with it. Yeah, okay. Announcements. So this is spring break this week for us. Yes. And uh, I'm 
going on a little jaunt with the family. Nice. No, nothing big, but, you know, some good family time. Uh, so one thing that means – two things. First, we're leaving pretty much right after we I turn the show around. Yeah. So there will be um, – uh, it'll be skimpy on the show notes. Mm-hmm. And as you know, I, I, I like, I like a full set of show notes. You do curate um, the world's be- best show notes, <laughs> in my opinion. Well, they, I think they match the show. The I, show is great, but the show wouldn't be half what it is without your awesome show. Notes. That's, I'm well aware that almost none of our listeners probably clicks on many of the show notes. But the idea is that, like, That's, you're a law student, and and this is an issue you're interested in. I think if you take a look at those show notes, you're ready to write a paper. <laughs> I include right. the pay- I include the latest research and all You're this stuff. You're at least ready to plagiarize some of the best materials. <laughs> yeah, that's it. The the other announcement is uh, because I'll be away. Um, next week's show will be a little bit late. Right. I think we're going to try to record on Sunday, but that's something you and I have to we'll have to work out. And I think it's likely to be another show with just you and me, just just Joe, as I like to call those shows. Okay, a just Joe show. Okay. Uh, but we'll, 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 and then uh, after that's when we'll be having our awesome guests. Yes. I mean, we've been, okay. we've had a few guests that we've been working with scheduling and, um, we've got one on the hopper people. Hold yeah. on to your hats. We'll have more. <laughs> you're sitting there just chucking, you're just <laughs> taking the lozenges. Oh boy. <laughs> Lots of lozenge Foley sounds. For the oh yeah. We got some, <laughs> yes. I'm a, I'm a lozenge packaging Foley artist. So th- this is, I like to, you know, we, we try to release a regular schedule. I like to release the shows on Friday right. uh, so that. Listeners can rely on it. Yeah. You got to make it. You got to ship it. Yeah. Yeah. So I just want to alert people that um, not to expect one next Friday. It'll be a little bit, a right. little bit late. Right. Um, anything? What, do we have any feedback? True. We do not. I said, do we? No, we do not. Uh, false. Yes, we do. True. We do not. <laughs> I got a couple of things. Well, first, um, you know, this was a big week for people who were, who have followed our federal jurisdiction saga. Um, because of all the Roy Moore stuff in Alabama. Um, Look, just for the sake of accuracy, uh, Roy Moore did not participate in that Alabama Supreme He had recused himself, I believe. Mm. So I don't think he participated in this most recent decision. I, I, I don't know. I, to tell you the truth, I did not. I mean, it's like a hundred and something page decision. I didn't take a look. I know 150. The, we, we know the issues involved roughly. and um, and And so it's been received by the media as like consternation is this history repeating itself and Alabama being defiant and what does right. the word defiant mean? And a lot of this is this issue about, you know, the yeah. extent to which state courts are bound to follow federal courts and then state executive officials bound to follow right. federal commands when yeah. those federal commands went to particular state officials, but not the whole state. So it's kind of a mess. And, and so I did tweet out over the week that, um, Hey, you know, if you're interested in this, you know, journalists, maybe, right. Right. You know, you, you don't want to read all these academic articles. Listen to our show with Amanda Frost. Yeah. And then, you know, if you're interested, you can go back. We did a show with Steve Vladek and, right. and a show with... We've been uh, covering this issue. Yeah, and a show with Michael Dorff. And, uh, yeah, we, we've we been all over this. So, um, uh, you know... Because it's quite challenging and quite complex and interesting. Yeah, yeah. And, and I really do... Amanda was really great and, and her Absolutely. paper is so... So I gave a link to the show and I said, you know, go back and listen to the show or, or just read her paper, which is linked up right. in the show notes and with along with other links. I think it's... Uh, uh, Boy, what a great place to get started. Um, we've been lucky to have really good guests on this on this topic. So, yeah. um, Another one. Um, That's not follow-up. <coughs> Gosh, all kinds That's of... That's you talking about promotional efforts. That's not follow-up. I would. What I'm saying is that the world as a whole 
has produced uh, new information, which makes stuff we already produced more relevant. That's true. Yeah. So I, I need to follow up like on that. like a howler monkey. It will just keep flinging its feces. <laughs> like no matter what you do. Oh boy. I love these just show shows. The, the Alabama Supreme Court will just keep grabbing its own poo. <laughs> oh, no. And flinging no. it at people. <laughs> Check another one off the list of a list of federal <laughs> and state officials. We will not, not be getting these guests on the show. Oh, my word. Um, so, uh, listener uh, Josh tweeted at us um, in response to last week's follow-up. And I, I have not checked this morning, so I don't know if we've gotten any more reviews or feedback on this. Okay. About the power rankings. Remember, we got that review on iTunes, right. which said that power rankings for one of the episodes that had been just you and me. <laughs> uh, power rankings for, I think it was episode 49, I think. Uh, one Joe, two Christian. Basically that you won. Right? <laughs> this, is a list, this is a listener who likes to see the show as kind of a winning game. And right. as I mentioned last time, everything's better if it's a winning game, right? Ah, okay. I, hope people, I hope people know that I'm kind of, you know, being facetious about that. Right. I, I think, right? You never know. Anyway, true. no joke is altogether untrue is Woody Allen once said. Well, so, so what makes when me wonder whether they, so, so daughter. Josh, Josh tweeted power rankings are the wrong analytical category. He's asserting kind of a philosophical category mistake here, ah. right? Um, it's the chemistry between the two of you that makes listening in fun. I agree. Mm-hmm. So I, that's why I think the power rankings, it would be better to just say, you know, oral argument one, everyone else zero. <laughs> Well, I don't know about that. There's some pretty good ones out there. And, Fair enough. But I, but I would say this too. Um, chemistry can include confrontational antagonism. It can. And and what makes the show great is uh, I think the, the big Joe smackdowns are, are always fun for the listeners. <laughs> I know they're fun for me, even when I'm being smacked down. Like it, there's the so much fun part, that though. I actually provoke you into them here's intentionally. The sad part, though. Yeah, what's the sad part? part. And I truly was thinking this the other day because I was listening to the Judge John Hodgman podcast. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, it is sad that you and I are never going to have a disagreement deep enough and interesting enough that he can adjudicate. That's never going to happen. And that makes me sad. Well, you know, I think you and I as litigants (laughs) before Judge John Hodgman would just, I I mean, I think the earth would move in its, I think it would just quake in its own orbit. And I think it would start to spin off of its axis. It would just be amazing. We could, I, we I, could create whole new magnetic fields for this planet. I think the problem that you identify is, is 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 pointing to a dispute sharp enough to be resolved in a forty minute segment on mm. the show or a thirty minute right. segment. Whereas I think That's Amanda's true. observation <clears throat> when she was on the show, wondering whether we in fact were married, uh, <laughs> points in the right directions that we would need like the equivalent. Of Judge John Hodgman, but for like divorces, mm. where the judge hears all kinds of grievances. Because we have many, you know, grievances yeah. upon grievances if here. If you were willing to devote, let's say, at least 10 or 12 weeks of episodes. Right. We might begin to scratch the surface of stuff. Like 1980s, um, remember miniseries? Remember when those used to be big? Like Shogun? Oh, yeah, Roots. miniseries. I mean, yeah. there were some good ones, and, and there were some that were not so good. Yeah. But they would go on, you know, every Shogun Sunday night good. or Monday night. was good. I, I, yeah, I'm saying there were some that were good. There were yeah. some that were not so good. Um, Thornbirds, that was not good. I don't, I don't remember. I, don't, I watched, I can't good. even remember the ones I watched. You know, I don't yeah. know. Um, okay, I got one more. I got one more, and then we'll get to the, to the topic for today. 
So, but before we do that, I want to know whether you, like me, are sad about the fact that we're never going to have a Judge John Hodgman worthy dispute with each other. I, I think that remains to be seen. Okay. Um, we certainly have plenty of mutual grievances. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my, I didn't realize you had many grievances. But see, that's what I'm saying. Like our grievances are, you know, the things that, 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 um, that you find irritating. Yes. That you remark upon. Yes. Um, are usually not about the thing itself. And that's the extent to which it's, it's like a marriage, I think is what, right. That it's. You know, so if you're if you're complaining about my asking you to do levels again, right? It's really not about that. Right. It's about something else. It's about. And I don't it. complain about that anymore. No, because you. I think you sound great on the show. You sound a lot better Thank than you. I do. If well, I might, and it's up to you. It's your sound yeah, engineering. Yeah, you you're got, the one who does the magic. My mom. My mom even commented, "Joe sure has a pleasing voice." Oh. And um, now that's all she said. Which. <laughs> 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 no, she's a big fan of the show, but um, <clears throat> since there are usually. You know, sometimes there's a third voice, but usually, you know, oftentimes there are right. the two voices and she says one is really good. What is one supposed to, you see? Right. Is it, um, kind of any, hard not to reach that inference. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, I got one more thing. Uh, listener hunt. Sometimes. Former uh, guest hunt. Former guest hunt um, on Twitter says, hey, oral argument, dot, dot, dot. And I'm wary immediately. I'm wondering, do I read the rest of this? Yeah. <laughs> um, have you and University of North Dakota Law School, which he tweeted, connected yet? Good question, Hunt. Good question. The answer is no. <laughs> um, because I don't like, – is all their – maybe all their internet traffic is routed through South Dakota or Minnesota. I've been or, saying that since the beginning. You have been. That has been your theory is that perhaps um, – there's a there's some kind of coding thing where there are we're not seeing the fact right that there are truly people because it's just not possible or maybe like North Korea like all the you know the internet it, it all appears to come from China or something like that you know I, I don't know I mean right uh, so no we've not connected um, I don't know if I know anybody there but I would love to I've never been to North Dakota I I that's as we've mentioned on the show before I think that's I think maybe the only state I haven't been in. You know, this whole thing, might, this whole state no, might turn two. out to be a hoax. <laughs> That's the sad part. Well, that sounds like a movie where you, you know, anyway. All right. Well, let, let's, let's go on. I, so the, yes, the, the answer is, uh, no, we've not connected. And the answer is no, we still have no downloads from the state of North Dakota. We still have far more from, uh, we have, as soon as I post the show, boom, I've got a couple of downloads from Israel. Wow. Got some from like Germany. I've got some, you know, all over the world. Fantastic. Um, Great people everywhere. We have we have a good number in Georgia, but not in any way a majority. Most of our listeners are out, you know, a lot in California, a lot in New York. Sure. Zero in North Dakota. I, I refuse to believe we actually have zero listeners in North Dakota. But wow. um, but Hunt, thanks for keeping this issue alive. Um, Absolutely. This 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 is an issue that won't that won't go away until no. we until we get that first download. I think. You know what I would love to see? Uh, and and maybe this could be, you know, whether it's the law librarians in North Dakota. Oh. Or, you know, but I think once, you know, I really do think that this is the kind of show where once some people hear it, like if you're a law student, you're kind of a law geek, like this should be right in your wheelhouse, right? Maybe Absolutely. you want to listen, you know, maybe not every time, whatever, no. maybe. And, and not every student, it's not going to be your cup of tea, not every professor, not every attorney, but boy, a lot more than we have already reached. 
right? That's kind of my theory of it, right? Because, sure. you know, we're not going to appeal nearly to everybody, but a lot of people have never heard of the show who would really like it. I think, I think right. we could spread through North Dakota Law School like wildfire. Absolutely. Um, and, and so what would be great is if our if, if North Dakota became the second most popular download state for us. Wouldn't that, I'd be an, I, it would be a great twist of fate. Or it could be third, you know, I don't know, it's New York, California, Georgia, it's all. Yeah, anyway. they're going to, it's going to hard to beat North New York and California. Yeah. There's a lot of people there. Yeah, and by the, by the way, for listeners, I mean, we have these metrics. I don't have any granular data. I don't know where <laughs> in Georgia these are really coming from. I don't know. Uh, I have no more information than that, just that it came from a state or region or something. So, uh, um, so again, maybe North Dakota's, you know, maybe if you're on the border there, like Fargo, Moorhead, you know, maybe, anyway, I don't know. Hmm. <sighs> Enough nonsense. Sadly, we're, we've arrived at our topic. <laughs> speaking, speaking of nonsense. <laughs> we're, I think it, we're both reluctant interlocutors on this, con, on this uh, topic. Well, I, I really do want to talk about it because I... I mean, it's been in the news, both the general news and the legal news for a few weeks now. It's really sort of dominating legal news and i really can't figure it out i mean i i um, i can i can figure out why people care because there's a great deal at stake in terms of real life effects i just can't figure out why it's an issue and um and i want to explore that with you a little bit i mean i'm going to talk about the oral argument so we're going to talk about the king versus burwell case which i keep calling hall because that's the other case that was in so so this is the challenge to obamacare um in in particular uh a challenge to the provision of federal subsidies uh, for participants in federal exchanges. These are exchanges, uh, you know, the, the, the marketplace is set up um, in federal states. Federal-run state exchanges. In, in there, states. There are actually only state exchanges. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but well, we're there are to some federal-run state exchanges. Yeah. Uh, and, and, if, and so what's at issue is can you receive a, a subsidy to pay for your insurance right. if you are getting your uh, insurance through – through a state-run state exchange or a federal-run state exchange or which of these exchanges are the subsidies available. The IRS's view is, and they're the ones implementing the regulations, the IRS's view is that you're eligible for those subsidies whether your exchange is run by the state or run by the federal government that you're shopping at. Right. That it makes no difference which government is running the exchange. Yeah. And unlike Obamacare 1... I, I wish we just call them Obamacare one and Obamacare two. Okay, but um, but unlike Obamacare one, the Sebelius case, uh, this one is a is a case of statutory interpretation. Right. So whether the answer to the question that you just asked, whether participants in in federal exchanges or what you might call federally run state exchanges, but federal exchanges, whether whether they can receive subsidies, totally depends. Well, it may there may be a constitutional challenge out there. I don't know what it is, but right. but at least this challenge says that as a matter of text of the, as a matter of the statute uh they, they can't do that right so I think, now the constitution can come into it because there's a there's a statutory interpretation yeah. canon called the constitutional avoidance canon which if 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 you have equally plausible interpretations and one of the two would cause a grave constitutional question and the other one would not choose the latter why go looking for a constitutional problem right assuming they're both plausible right yeah. i think if one of them is implausible you don't you don't ignore its implausibility in the name of avoiding the constitutional issue. At least I wouldn't think so. But yeah, so I mean, there were yeah, that's one so of the. There's a way that the constitutional overtone, and indeed an oral argument, yeah, it comes up. It was a bit of attention paid, and, to and it, maybe but. we'll get to this in 
in, in a little bit in, in greater detail. Um, but the primary question here is how you how you interpret this statutory provision, right? Um, and and different things can can impinge on that. Whereas the earlier challenge was about the constitutionality of the relative of the basically agreed upon text of the statute. So yeah. so that's where we are. And um and and, and today now we. In the future, maybe we'll – depending on how this comes out and what we think we want to talk about. I'm, you know, I'm loath to do kind of punditry on this show. I'm not so interested in talking about something just because it's like politically charged because I don't know that – yeah. I, I don't necessarily have a lot to add um, um, sometimes to – you know, I mean some would argue any of the time. <laughs> but but I feel like, you know, if there's something to add, we should talk about it. And, and I'm kind of, as I said, like loath to talk about something just because it's in the news, just to give my opinion about it. Right. Um, no, but we, I, should, we should explore things that you and I want to explore. Yeah. But maybe in the future, we can get a guest on here to talk to us about particular aspects of this or get someone else sure. who has a different view of this case. Um, uh, and so today, I, you know, I'm I'm going to put some of my political cards out on the table. We've got a, a range of listeners with different kind of ideological views from, sure. from libertarian to traditionally conservative to uh, liberal in the um, modern political sense of liberal to right. whatever, right? So um, – and and so I'll put my cards out on the table. But like, you know, I don't know. I, I want to – part of what makes me really interested about this is how people can disagree about it. Like I cannot get my mind around uh, the – this challenge, the legitimacy of this challenge, I, I really have trouble with it. And so if you're a listener who who can't get your mind around people who say that the text should be interpreted in the way that the government says it should be interpreted, like that's really interesting to me. I can't – because I can't figure it out, right? I, I, I just see this challenge as so unbelievably weak as a matter of textual interpretation, right? Just as a matter of text. And then when you add all the other stuff in, I feel like right. I'm through the looking glass. And so, I was, you know, as I said on, on someone's Facebook this week, you know, reading through the transcript of the argument, now the argument audio is out and we're going to link right. it up. And, and uh, we're not going to go into a lot of detail about what the case is about other than what we've just said because it's all over the news. And you right. can get it. And, and I suggest that you, um, if you're listening, you might want to go ahead and listen to the oral argument audio. It's about an hour uh, you may follow all of it, none of it, depending on how much law you know. But uh, then come back and listen. You may get more out of this conversation then. But uh, listening, I was, I found it like in a way shocking. Like I was just shocked that uh, that this seemed like a live issue. Um, that's not to say that I, don't, you know, uh, one of the legal academics who's been pushing this for a long time is Jonathan Adler. He was on uh, Dolly Lithwick's show Amicus, yep. along with Abby Gluck from Yale. Great conversation. I'm not saying he doesn't legitimately believe in this interpretation of the text. Um, you know, I, I assume he does. And I think it's the kind of thing where if you, you know, once you see a plausible interpretation and that interpretation is goes kind of politically where you want it to go, you might recognize that at the beginning. But when you're kind of, you know, it's the same kind of thing that happens when you're a private lawyer or even a government lawyer and after working on a case for a long time, it becomes very easy to see that, you know, even if you're just hired to work on it and you had no right. views to begin with. I mean, right. to be, identify with your client, your client's issues is a, like a well-known phenomenon. Right. I'm not saying that's necessarily what happened with, with Jonathan here. Um, I've got no idea and maybe we should have him on the show eventually to talk about it. We'll, we can see. But, uh, um, but it would be foolish, I think, to ignore the fact that because what you say is true. And in addition, I think it would be foolish to ignore the fact that those who are urging uh, 
the conclusion that the statute has this problem. Yeah. Uh, that, that you're not eligible for the subsidy if you are uh, getting your insurance through a federally run state exchange. Yeah. Um, I think it would be foolish to ignore the fact that those individuals, um, including a very few specific individuals, have been urging finding some problem with the statute publicly saying we have to come up with something. It doesn't matter what it is. We need to find a way to bring down the statute. We need to find the flaw and searching and searching and searching. <coughs> and then lo and behold, this is their argument. I think it would be silly to ignore that context. Right. Um, because as you, as you've just said, your, your view of a case as you spend a long time with it can become wrapped up with your motivations in being drawn to the issues. Right. And that can inform your the way you evaluate the, the 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 upside and the downside of certain arguments how they relate to each other so i just think that's i mean these these are things i'm not telling people things they don't know these these facts are well known about the people who participated in formulating the challenge and there are two aspects to that i mean there's the and, and we will get into more of the details of this argument in a second so stick with this and, and i also want to talk a little bit about the politics of it but the um I'm conscious of this in my own mind too, right? Like I don't want to see the statute struck down for all kinds of reasons, even though like I'm not particularly wedded to this approach to solving the problem. I am wedded to doing something about the problem of the uninsured right. and about the misallocation of healthcare spending. Like this right. to me, like is a, is a problem. I don't, yes. I don't want to see and, kids go without insurance or even, right. even adults go without and just, insurance. And, and just so that you're not the only, I mean, uh, or healthcare actually you talked about yeah. laying cards on the table. I mean, I, you know, I would have vastly preferred, uh, sort of a Medicare for all single payer approach. Right. I, I would not have if if I could have waved a wand and changed mm -hmm. the way people are insured and therefore receive health care treatment that they need. Right. I would not have chosen the Affordable Care Act. Right. Not by a mile would I have chosen it. Right. So it's not. I'm not. I, I don't worry about the law's fate because I support the law in and of itself. I don't. In fact. Right. But but I can't and but I, I agree. don't want to have millions of additional uninsured people at the snap of a finger, which is what will happen, right? Uh, if the people challenging the statute in this case prevail, yeah, I mean maybe the states will rush to establish exchanges and the court will stay the mandate. And there was an interesting thing in the argument about whether the court would have the authority to stay them once it figures out the statute means right. this thing. Like maybe it can do they've it. They've done in, it before. They've done it before, but not in the context where it would have these budgetary implications. Right. I mean, so you know. Can they order to – basically the order would say, you know, the, the the statute means that you can't provide these subsidies. In other words, federal government, you can't spend this money. There's no authorization for it. However, right. we're going to stay it. In other words, we're going to act as though you're required to do it right. in order to avoid disruption. Does the court have the authority to just make us – basically it would be passing its own spending bill. And then and then it's interesting that the, the very thing that would tempt them to do so is evidence that – they're incorrect in their conclusion, right? Which is if they if they think that interpretation of the law is sufficiently difficult or or hard or surprising, well, then that means it's there's an ambiguity. Yeah. The IRS should get the right to resolve. I mean, it just it's I want to get to that. Yeah, let's let uh, just to stay zoomed out for just a minute more, though. Right? I there's I'm conscious of the fact that I do not want this statute basically gutted by this interpretation. Right, nor do I. Um, I believe that my reasons for that, um, so I have, you know, reasons for that which lie in the, 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 uh, the, the practical effects of that ruling, which would cause the effects that you're talking about. And, you know, uh, that, that's a reason, right? I actually am worried about the people who would be injured right. um, or even, you know, you know, you can calculate excess deaths caused by this thing, you know, yep. it's possible. 
Um, and, and whether a mandate could be, you know, whether a ruling could be struck so that that doesn't, ha- I don't know, but you know, that's a risk. Uh, and, and I don't see the sense of it. So, so that like is a, is a result that I don't want, but trying to separate that also on the law side, like this is not a result that I think is reasonable. And, but I'm conscious of the fact that those two things are going together in yeah. my head. Right. And I so, also don't want it to turn out that I also don't want that because I'm a, I'm worried about how you, in order to rule in favor of the challengers, they will need to explain that ruling. Right. And what that explanation will do to the way we understand how to interpret statutes. Yeah. It, that's that also it, causes me worry. Yeah. So because it's going to be such a such a strange <laughs> explanation, in my opinion, because I don't understand how, the merit on the other side. Frankly, let me give you a preview of what I mean. Well, let me just say this. Do you see what I mean? Well, though, yes. You, I, could, you could be worried about yeah. the, the follow-on effects in the doctrine of how we interpret statutes, right? And and in the kind of the um, analytical um, uh, array of kind of textualism, intentionalism, and purposivism, right. I think this would create a fourth category, which I'll talk about, you know, I'll mention oh, cool. in, a little, in a little bit. Um, and, Is and, it that, and it troubles me. Crazy? It, no. <laughs> See, maybe, I don't want to edit anything today, Joe. I know. I'm getting in my swear. Because <laughs> I've got I to gotta leave. I've got to skip town. Um, so I'm, anyway, I'm aware of that the, a preference about the result is in my head at the same time as I'm analyzing this bit of law. Right. And... I'll temper that by saying that, like you, I don't have a lot of like you know. It's not as though I think that this statute is the be all end all of healthcare. So I, it's not as though my identity is wrapped up in the pres- right. preservation of this statute. Right. I just think I'm worried about the practical effects of striking it down now. Right. Um, and 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 I'm aware that that worry would be there even if I thought this is a legitimate challenge. And I'm aware that my worry about that may be affecting the legitimacy of this, uh, the, my perceived legitimacy of this challenge. Like that's. Of course, right? Of right. course, you know when you have those thoughts in your head at the same time, you you should you should worry about that. Um, and and it brings to mind a couple. And I certainly that's the way I'm seeing the other side because I see perfectly reasonable people, including members of the court. You know, this is what kind of blew my mind. Like acting as though not only is the government's position not absolutely clear, but it's but that it's absolutely clear that federal subsidies are not permitted on. Uh, uh, on federal exchanges uh, to say that the statute is clear on that. I can't even get my mind around that. Right. Like as a matter of text, much less as a matter of like intentionalism or purposes and whatever else you don't even have to go there. So, so that's, and, and so it brought to mind a couple of different um, ideas. I mean, one is kind of like the way that we live with the result and, and the way that like results and wants in our head can shape our analysis of the things that can get us there brings to mind like the conspiracy theorist in the basement with like the Polaroid pictures and, 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 and tape string. and all and string and all this stuff. Right. I mean, it's, and I'm, and I'm not, I'm not slamming the um, petitioners with this necessarily. It is a little bit how I see this statutory. It seems to be well beyond like anything I can imagine, but I'm well aware that they could see me the same way. Sure. Um, and uh, like how much of that is going on? Like, you know, this is really this case in a way that, even the constitutional case, although I didn't think much of the Commerce Clause challenge, you know, to be honest, but this, this is, you know, results driven in a way that um, it, it's a highly motivated case and maybe on both sides, but I don't want to do the equivalency thing here because I just honestly, right. you know, as we'll talk about in a minute, don't don't see it. The other is um, – the, the other kind of framework for looking at this is the uh, – and I think we talked about this on an earlier show, like the, uh, the Kahneman research – 
Um, uh, anyway, well, I'll, I'm not going to link it up. We can delve further into it in another show. But this idea that like the more you find, the more you're told information about something, the more rigidly you adhere to your previous views, right? <laughs> and they, they can show this with with global warming and and right. with, uh, with vaccines reasoning. and other things. Yeah, I right. mean, um, and we're all prey to this a little bit. And so, were you trying to refer to Danny Kahneman or or Dan Kahneman? Yeah, that's I, that's why I hesitated because yeah. there was a Vox interview with um, uh, Ezra Klein. I think we linked it up in an earlier show, and I think it was Kahan actually. Because I think it was the, you know, but I, I'm aware that like a lot of the reading, I, anyway, I, let's, let's not get it. I'm not going to link it up in the show because I don't Understood. have time to do all these show notes anyway. Understood. So, um, uh, but, but a lot of people written about this. I'm not saying anything that most right. of our listeners aren't, aren't familiar with, but there's really good research on people kind of strengthening their views, yes. even when they're exposed to scientific information. Right. And, and, and that this is not, um, uh, and, and yeah, and that this is not restricted to one particular political view. Um, right. It's something we're all subject to. Yes. It's a human, uh, it's a human activity. All humans can and do do it sometimes. Right. So, um, you know, in this context where there are those of us who would like to see this statute work, even if it's not our preferred version, and there are some who just seem ideologically opposed to the statute altogether. I think a lot of that is going on. Yes. And, and here's the first thing, and, and this is, you know, like I know we've got some listeners, that, uh, uh, conservative listeners who probably don't, maybe don't think much of Obamacare. I would like to understand exactly why. Let's just, you know, just the the Obamacare issue. If this is just a proxy for a fight over whether this is going to be the way we do health care, right? Like I don't really get um, the kind of libertarian position on this. This is some kind of statist intervention. Like if I, I have to say, if I were uh, of a, of a conservative slash libertarian point of view, Obamacare would seem to me a pretty darn good way to go um, to so- if I were actually concerned about the plight of the uninsured and all of this. Because, you know, and it was, a, you know, originally it's based on this Heritage Foundation right. um, thing. And it's, it's a way of preserving <clears throat> markets uh, um, and, and, and private health insurance and yet getting at the problem of the uninsured by pooling people into larger buying groups. But well, so, I don't get it. Get what? I, I don't get the, I don't get the fervid, you know, opposition well, to this I, thing. The, uh, near as I can tell, I think the argument on that from, from that perspective would be that, uh, the way you get people into that larger pool of risk is, uh, one aspect of it is, um, the individual mandate. Yeah. Uh, that you are required to purchase the the insurance and that if you don't, you can be uh, penalized for that by yeah. means of a tax penalty. Um, so it's extracting tax payments on, as a way to get people to do something they wouldn't otherwise want to do. So it's a co- it's coercive in that sense. Yeah, but only in the um, sense, I mean, this is where Robert's opinion about the tax was actually fundamentally correct like you, even if you, whether you call it that or not it's Agreed. it's fundamentally an obligation to pay money to, to solve a social a libertarian problem might find this objectionable that it's i just it's don't find not, that credible not, though that's okay. what i'm yeah i know you don't either and i know you're just but rehearsing i haven't even finished the point yet all right so um, <laughs> so it's hard for you to say that you don't because uh, you haven't heard it but so here i, it I thought i had um <laughs> that uh so to the degree that you think you're you're supporting a market 
um, it's actually not a market that that spontaneously forms from the bottom up because people want to trade in something. It's a market that's created because you artificially in- establish demand by requiring people to buy something they don't they wouldn't otherwise want to buy. Right. right. So that's that would be one critique. Another critique would be and, and you that know the that, money yeah. to do so comes b- by way of a forced transfer from and I think this is what actually bothers a lot of the people who pay to continue to oppose the statute rather than merely the people who hear about it and find it objectionable on a conceptual ground. But um, people like the Koch brothers and others who continue to fund lots of opposition um, is because it's a wealth transfer. And it's a wealth transfer from people who have more resources to people who have less. And they're fundamentally opposed to those. So the fact that the that the money you need in order to provide people the very subsidies they're objecting to in this litigation, right? Right. where does that money come from? Well, it comes from people with more and goes to people with less. They don't like that. And yeah, they never yeah, will. I, I get that. I get and, that. And, I, and so anything that would stop that from happening is, in their view, a good thing. Just like they have not liked Social Security ever and will, would love to see it disappear. They don't like Medicare. would like to see that disappear. And it's all for the same reason. Because these are fundamentally wealth transfers that are designed to um, ameliorate or eliminate poverty and the effects of poverty. Uh, and they've been wildly, Social Security and Medicare have both been wildly successful in that regard. Right. And they wouldn't, I think, not like to see Obamacare become wildly successful in the same regard. Isn't that the critique? Well, I, yeah, I, I just think that, I mean, they're, you're correct that the subsidies represent traditional redistribution of wealth um, to solve a problem. Um, there are other aspects of the program uh, that are um, uh, that are kind of intergenerational transfers, right? That you know that good point uh, to solve moral hazard problems, right? Right. That I'm gonna, to change the character of the risk pool, right? Right. Right. So this is the this is the idea that young people have to buy insurance even if they don't want it, right. uh, and most of the healthcare expenditures are going to the older population, and so there's kind of a subsidy by the young of the old, right. and that's how the system works. Uh, Kind of like how younger workers are funding the benefits for retirees now. Sure. Um, even though retirees can say, "I paid in at the time that I did," you know, just because of the fungibility of money. This right. we know we know how this really right. works. Um, uh, and so, so that, there, there are aspects of the program about those oppositional positions. No, no. I, mean, I just think there's a part of the program which is solving like a traditional moral hazard market failure type problem, right? That we just. Um, uh, if unless you're willing to say that people don't have insurance, should you know we should repeal EMTALA, the emergency room requirement, right. and other things, and you're, unless you're willing to say we should people should die on the streets or right. have these real problems, then then you've got to have this problem how to fund this system, right? And right. Uh, so I, anyway, I don't. I would like to hear, and I haven't. Like, what is the what is the more libertarian alternative to Obamacare? Um, and if it if it really is, let the uninsured suffer, and let the poor suffer, um, or the you know poor to middle class who aren't covered by Medicaid. Do you also want to get? So I'd like to hear the honest assessment. Do you want to get rid of Medicaid? Should we keep Medicaid? Should Medicaid be expanded upward? Is that the solution? Although 
these very same people were opposed, at least in this litigation. I'm not saying all libertarians are. Right. Uh, like, what is the end game here? Like, what are we disagreeing about what we want? Are we disagreeing question. about the implementation? I cannot figure that out. Right. Um, because I can't explain, like I said, the fervor of the opposition to this particular law on kind of instrumental implementation grounds. I, I agree with you that like there can be a philosophical objection to the redistribution at issue, but I don't see another way. I haven't seen an alternative of delivering the same kind of alleviation of suffering goal right. that people seem to say that they have, right? I mean, right. or even a, even a good account, like a, a good solid account of how, you know, there's been this stuff about allowing them to compete across uh, state lines, and I haven't seen anything that this is that this is actually going to solve. You know, that solve the problem. But so, so that's one way in which I can't get. You know, this challenge doesn't exist in a vacuum. It exists in a in a world of uh, of dispute over this statute, uh, where this dispute seems to be very ideological, and yet I can't understand the ideological parameters of the debate. I, I I hear what you say, Joe, about like the fundamental opposition to redistribution, but I you know I don't get that that's that that the people who want to repeal Medicaid and Social Security and all I don't that's a small group, right? Uh, it's okay. a very small group. Sure, uh, and, but but they but but that small group can and I think does um, pour a lot of resources into motivating people to. Uh, attack slices of it that they are able to sure. motivate people to attack. I get the I get the negative story about this group that there are well financed people who would never suffer under the policies that they want to adopt and are hoodwinking a bunch of people into well, look, opposing I, this. I, but that, I'm wondering what the like the legitimate like libertarian ground is here. You know what I mean? I, to me, that's not legitimate. Like you know, sell people honestly on what you're saying, and and that's I haven't heard the honest story. Of the alternative to okay. Obamacare yet, and you mean other than the story about being required to purchase insurance that you don't want and otherwise wouldn't purchase? Because um, it seems to me that is a that is a libertarian style argument. Sure, I mean that it's a use of state power to coerce me into a transaction I wouldn't freely choose. Right. What I mean is I haven't heard the alternative to solving the. It's always possible to snipe oh, a particular oh, okay. mechanism. Well, yeah, right. Right. No, I ha I I, agree, I absolutely agree with you. I don't know what the I don't know what the Cato Institute's genuine solution is to the problem of the uninsured. Right. Because mild forms I, of I don't know the yeah, mild forms of coercion are basically univer almost universally agreed upon solutions to at least some problems. Like the problems of of funding civilization in right. we disagree about what's required of a civilization, but you know, funding national defense, all of these no one's, you know, seriously promoting that we just have private competing defense firms <laughs> that shore up the nation's boundaries. Not I mean, I, I, I haven't seen any of that, right? I mean, so, um, so it, 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 you know, this is a traditional problem of that kind. And if you believe, you know, I think I feel like we've gone down the political road maybe a little bit too much, but I kind of wanted to prompt listeners who were of that persuasion to kind of tell me, you know, what's what am I missing here? Let's let's because maybe in a future show we could dig into what I think is the underlying thing, right? Okay, I just. Um, I, you know, I just don't, I just don't get this challenge absent that broader context. Okay. Do you agree with that? We just, I just saw, by the way, a notification from listener Josh on Twitter who just tweeted at us something about Kennedy and the Affordable Care Act. Ah. I don't know what it is, but it's going to be, you know, maybe we'll answer that in the course of the show. Maybe. But sorry, Josh, I can't look at it right now, though. 
So <laughs> we'll get back. Hope maybe next week we can follow up with that. I mean, I, I guess I'm not, I, I'm not clear what you're, I'm no longer clear on what you're talking about. So maybe we should talk about something else. Maybe you should move on to <laughs> this the is next. The, like any good relationship, this is the solution to uh, confusion and problems is to pretend like the, just it change doesn't the subject. just change the subject. So what else about the King against Burwell do you want to talk about? Well, I want to talk about the oral argument and and the the arguments um, on each side, and and the reason I raise all of that is because I, you know, I, I, you know, other than the motivated reasoning, I don't understand this case at all. Um, so the, c- connecting to what we've just talked about, there's a standing issue, right? You know, with the plaintiffs, uh, which the government did not um, really contest. Um, and the idea is like who can sue and, and traditionally, you know, we won't go into standing doctrine, but you, in order to sue, you've got to have some concrete injury that is not just – you can't just sue on ideological – on an ideological ground. Right. No, you, you need to have a concrete injury that, that the court order in the case could actually fix. Right. Like, and, so maybe you were harmed and the person needs to pay you some damages. Right. Or maybe there's an ongoing harm and the person could be ordered to stop. And, right, but the order that you would enter in the case would actually redress the actual problem. Right, and that's really important because you want the people who are in court having the argument with each other to really have a stake in the outcome because that will help sharpen and improve the arguments. Yeah, I mean, standing is not—it's not a totally arbitrary, goofy thing. It no. actually helps contribute to better, uh, better quality litigation. At least that's the theory. Yeah, and, well, and there are other theories too. I mean, it restrains the power of the court. It's a separation of powers thing too. Oh, good so point. The, right. So, um, but. As I understand it, in this case, the uh, the argument for standing. See, these plaintiffs are saying, are having somehow to raise the claim that they shouldn't be granted subsidies, <laughs> right? And, and the argument, based as I see it, is that if it, but for the subsidies, their income would have exempted them from complying with the individual mandate. Ah. Right. And so they would not be subject to the tax penalty. Right. And so what they want to vindicate is their right to go uninsured without paying a penalty. Ah, so that really does connect to the libertarian critique. Exactly. A moment ago. Yeah. Yeah. So. All right. So anyway, um, what else? What do you want to talk about with this? I've got a I've got a whole list of notes here. We're not going to get to it all, but. um, Well, go, go. Let's use your list. I don't know. I feel like I'll just. I mean, I, I, you know, I have a not, I've not listened to the whole oral argument. Um, I was quite shocked to hear uh, Justice Kennedy's uh, suggestion that it would be odd to use the Chevron doctrine in a context where so much money was at stake. Yeah. I, I found that to be quite shocking, actually. This was at the very end of the argument. I don't know when it occurred. Yeah, I haven't yeah, listened yeah. to the whole argument, but I had heard that little patch of, of, concept and i and i just found it quite shocked because it sounds quite upside down to me actually that the more money is at stake the more important it is to follow chevron because chevron is a chevron for those who've never heard of it is the idea that uh when you have an agency that's been given the task of implementing a congressional statute and a national statute and uh that statute has some ambiguity uh, or some gaps in what it means that the implementing agency, uh, so long as it uses a reasonable construction of the statute, uh, the agency is the one who will interpret that statute. Courts will have to defer to that reasonable construction. Right. Uh, and 
And so this doctrine exists, and indeed the Chevron case itself explains that it exists. This is a case from 1984, an environmental case. And the court says there that one reason why this is the right approach is because agencies are more politically accountable bodies. They're more accountable to the president who nominates employees of the agency, to the Senate that confirms the head of the agency, um, etc. So the more money is at stake, the m- I would think your political theory would say, uh, a theory of political science would say, that the more money is at stake, the more important, not the less important it is, to approach the statute so that the politically accountable branches have the greater say in how the statute will be implemented. Right. So I found it quite shocking, quite uh, backward and, and bizarre to suggest that the more money was at stake, the less you would want the politically accountable, the more you would want to arrogate to the judiciary, which is not elected um, and, and can't be removed except for bad behavior, right? They're essentially there for life. Um, and that's really good. It, protect, it insulates them politically, and which is a good thing for, in many contexts. But in this one, it seems to me quite perverse, quite backwards to suggest that, oh my gosh, there's some billions of dollars at stake. Better not let the the agency near it. That's that's just bizarre. Well, I think there was, um, I mean, he referred, and I did not follow up on this, so maybe we'll have to leave this for another, um, uh, for another show, but that there is a, um, uh, there's some special like tax doctrine or something like that for having to be clear when it comes to granting a, um, an exemption or something like that. So I, 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 I don't know about this well, area. And, and to the degree that there is a, a, a doctrine f- uh, in tax law that interacts uniquely, fine. Uh, but I'll, but you know, the, <laughs> the IRS was Congress expressly put in the IRS's hands the implementation of these subsidy provisions and so there's no question at all that that's the agency that's going to be figuring out that angle on this issue of course the hhs has to figure out other aspects to it yeah the agency health human services yeah uh, but but then all these are federal agencies that have the power to implement the statute and that's traditionally how chevron operates as you well know i my preferred argument here is not chevron um because, you know, Chevron, again, is that doctrine for um, deferring to agencies on it's ambiguous statutes. It's not my preferred argument either. I'm telling you what surprised me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. What I heard, when I heard that from the argument, I found that genuinely surprising. I, I had that too. It's a little bit surprising because I didn't – if there is a special doctrine in tax or in, with exemptions and clarity, you know, I don't know what it is. So. I mean, arguably, Chevron has no application because the statute's actually perfectly clear that these subsidies are available. Yeah, so that's what I want to go through a little bit. <laughs> I mean, so, you know, there are there are basically only three provisions that are key. And there, there are other, arguably, other provisions that help you see the statute in the whole context. There's this 36B, which is where the restriction, so it says, you know, this is, and and, and I don't have the statutory text in front of me. So I, and I, and I didn't this, realize we were going to parse it at this well, level. Well, no, we're I not going to, we I'm not going to. We're just, I, I want to skim over the surface just a little bit. And this will give the listeners a chance to, you know, email in and tell us we're wrong and stuff. So 36B is the provision that that basically says that you can get subsidies uh, to buy insurance uh, under certain conditions on exchanges established by the state, right? On an exchange established by the state. 1311 is the provision in the the code, which says that the the state shall establish an exchange um, and talks about state exchanges. 
1321 is the provision that says that, you know, if the states don't establish an exchange, then the secretary of HHS shall establish such exchange, right? Right, a state uh, exchange. And, and it says, let's see, what was the, um, so, so that's the, you know, all right, so that's the text, right? And, and how do you interpret all this stuff together? And, um, You know, traditionally for interpreting this stuff, people will differ on 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 their method for doing that, right? And and there's no there's nothing in the Constitution itself uh, that mandates any particular method. The Supreme Court has adopted kind of a uh, a kind of a potpourri of interpretive methods, saying sure. generally you start with the text, but you interpret it in the context of the whole document, and then there's a disagreement about whether to use legislative history or not, and all these little disagreements about what kinds of things you can use actually point toward a larger disagreement about what matters in statutory interpretation. True. Um, and and points toward what I've called elsewhere like a level four theory, right? A theory about like why you would why you would recognize the authority of an institution. Like it's that reason it's the reasons you have for recognizing the authority of Congress with respect to statutes that drive your interpretive methods. Mm-hmm. And I think that Scalia and and say Breyer and and probably Kagan just fundamentally disagree yes. at that at that level. Yep. Um now that said, like so, you know, what is I, this is what I've been trying to get my mind around. What is the interpretive method, right? And what are the reasons for recognizing Congress's authority, which lead to that interpretive method, that makes sense of the petitioner's argument here about the text, which makes sense of the challenge here? And I cannot get there without without creating a fourth category, which I'll talk about in a second. But the argument opens, and Kagan starts with this, like I think, really great example. The uh, about our clerks. And she says, all right, so let's put it in another context, right? So I've got three clerks. Uh, I forget their name. Will, Will, Amanda, and what was the third one? I don't know. I, for, I forget. Let's say, let's say Joe. Will, no, Amanda, and Emily. Joe. No, let's say Joe. There were two women and one man. Okay. Um, so Amanda, Emily, and Joe. And uh, and I say to Amanda, uh, it's, I don't know. I'm going to get all these. I'm not, it's not exactly her argument. It doesn't really matter, right? I say, you know, Amanda, write this memo. Right. And then, Joe, you know, I want you to um, uh, uh, edit the memo, edit the memo. And Emily, if Amanda can't write the memo, please write such memo. Please write such memo. Now, when I get the memo later and I learn that that Emily wrote it, not Amanda, would I expect Joe to have edited it or not? Right. And the answer is yes. Yes. I mean, that's how you work. So you say, you know, because Joe's role is to edit the memo and the role of the other is to write it. And if Amanda didn't write it, Emily's her backup writer. Right. So there's a process that's been set up with an alternative. Right. And it gets edited. Right. And then even Alito if it said, sweeps in and brilliantly says, but wait a minute, who, who should I praise <laughs> when I learn later that, it's, that I read it later and it is really a great memo? And right. it turns out Emily wrote it. Does Amanda get the praise but or he, Emily? He doesn't. I, that doesn't make sense because the whole point of the hypo is like what the editor is supposed to think, right? Right. So it's well, but it but it does make sense in that it raises that there are many things to be there are many things to wonder about in such a scenario: praise and blame, people's different roles, and what none of these raise is these questions of of. Right. Real power and right. the, and the division of power between those who are elected and those who are not and other related issues. I mean, if you tell some, yes. And, and, and oh, so if you tell somebody, write a memo and then you say, hey, I want you to edit that person's memo and you use the name of that person. It was an Emily was the original writer. I forget. Joe, edit Emily's memo. 
right? Joe, edit, you know, Emily's memo. And then you separately tell Amanda, Amanda, if Emily can't write that memo, you should write such memo. Yeah. And then as the boss, are you going to be upset when Amanda writes the memo and Joe refuses to edit it because it wasn't written by Emily? That would be nuts in that situation. Right. It would be nuts. Joe's being so, Joe is being a literalist of the sort that makes you really question your decision to hire Joe. Right. Because <laughs> that seems like a very bizarre stance to take. And as, I will not re- I will not edit it. You I refuse. You said edit Emily's and Emily didn't write it. And and what 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 Breyer points out in his argument is that Emily's memo denotes the memo that the boss wanted written. Correct. Right? It didn't that that was a, in other words it was almost a term of art, right? It was right. you know that you were identifying for Joe the memo that he was supposed to edit, right? Right. Um and that's exactly – so I don't get really Alito's point necessarily here because the the, the analogy uh, is the, the editor is like the person who's supposed to be providing funds, right? And the provision of funds, right, is is what uh, – you know, it says funds shall be only available for – let's suppose – you know, suppose we were talking about paying, right? So, so instead um, I say, you know um, – uh, Oh, uh, I just thought of a – Yeah, go so ahead. So you say, Amanda, write the memo. Mm-hmm. Emily, if Amanda's not available, write the map, write such memo, such memo. Yeah. Um, Joe provide Amanda the paper she needs to print her memo. Mm-hmm. And if Joe refused to provide the paper when he learned that Emily had was the pinch hitter to write the memo and instead of said, Amanda, prov- like, and, I'm not giving Emily any paper. And you said, Joe, <laughs> be like, wait a minute. And it would of be, course you should give her the paper. And it, it didn't even say Joe provide Emily the paper. It says Joe provide the paper for, for, Emily, the memo. for Emily's memo. For Emily's memo. If Emily was the first to get the assignment. In my hypo, she wasn't. But oh, fine, did I, I'm already mixing it up? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Uh, or, if it just, or if it said, Joe, provide the paper to print the memo. Okay, so there, so this is just a textual argument. Divorced from anything else, right? right? That, that this scheme has that form, right? And Kagan recognizes that there is another way of seeing that where the boss may have cared very much with respect to that third party, either the one providing the paper, about the identity of the person doing it. Yep. But what she elucidated there was that there are a whole bunch of scenarios in which in which the reference to the original writer is only supposed to denote the identity of the underlying thing, the memo, right? It yep. is not meant to, like, allocate, you know, to say, th- in this situation, provide the paper, in that situation, don't, right? And in which case... Um, there isn't any ambiguity for the agencies to resolve. Congress yeah, yeah, has right. actually already nailed down precisely what needs to happen. Right. So what is this broader context in which we have to understand whether this is like the clerks or whether it's something else, which is a little bit weirder because, and, and here's where uh, we really, I think go down the rabbit hole mm. because, and there are two, there are two kind of problems. One is we all know what happened here, right? I mean, there's there's an attempt to create, I think, and maybe the people making this argument believe, maybe because they've been living with it for so long, and they've got this one guy, Jonathan Gruber, who was close to the creation of the statute, who said one thing at one time. It's not clear to me, and I don't actually know right now. I think 
he said these things after this challenge had started getting some traction, oh, uh, yeah. or at least after it was proposed. I don't know. But uh, putting that aside, like, nobody thought that, that this was supposed to be some kind of incentive for the states to establish no. exchanges, right? No. And, and they don't really make that argument. Now they say just, they just assumed right. that the states were going to establish it. So The biggest clue in that regard is that the Congressional Budget Office, which scores legislation and plays a really vital role, in the modern consideration of legislation. Right. The CBO never scored this any other way. And to hear Verrilli tell it, the, the states now who are, the, the, there's a handful of states who didn't set up an exchange who were saying, hey, we didn't know that, um, that we wouldn't be able to get subsidies for our citizens unless we, and there are a handful of states which are kind of signed on to this challenge. Right. But those handful, that handful of states they all submitted comments to the IRS rule, which didn't evince any understanding that they would lose subsidies. That's what Verrilli says in the argument, right? So there's just – it so just If you go back and you look at what people thought at the time in context where they actually had to do some figuring of numbers. Right. And therefore, it would really matter which answer had they thought were the operative answer. Right. You look back at their figures and it was all on the assumption that the government's theory of this statute is correct. Yeah. And it's not – yeah, and – which makes it hard to figure out why the challengers. I think one of their major arguments is that that although you know when you make this argument, everybody nobody nobody thought that that these um, funds wouldn't be available. They say, right. well, there's no legislative history the other way either, saying that federal funds would that the would be available. Well, that, that's, but this, as is, I've just said, that based on what I've just said, that's flatly wrong. Yeah, like and the CBO about, scoring was predicated on the availability. Of what the they mean is that there there are no senators or uh, right. saying this or that or the other, and that's fine. Either you, way. One, one great reason not to talk about something is because you think everyone already understands it. Right. So the fact that the record doesn't have statements of people – people also – the record probably also lacks statements with people declaring that the sun will rise in the east the next day. Well, because that's a well understood fact, right? So if every – if the predicate for this is the subsidies are available – whether the feds run the state exchange or the state runs the state exchange, it's surprising that people don't talk about it. Right. Well, there's the – I mean, you know, you could say that if you really do think there's an ambiguity here, you would think, well, maybe this is something people would have talked about. And uh, if you, know, you think there were an ambiguity, if you think there were, right? The, so the boss who assigns the memos doesn't think there's an ambiguity. Of course not. And you can say, well, boss, you never said, I'm, but you know, you never said what should happen in, in this scenario. I think you get fired if you said, <laughs> right? But um, so I said there were two things. The the other thing that was kind of unreal about this is the assumption about what Congress will do. Right, that Congress can fix this uh, if it's struck down, and and this was an interesting part of the argument where uh, Verrilli was you know asked like you know Verrilli saying, look, if there's a whole maelstrom of horrible things that's going to happen right. if you rule this way, and the very fact that that maelstrom of things is going to happen is some evidence that Congress didn't intend for this interpretation to go this way, right. and Scalia says, well, you know, a couple of things. One about the interpretation, which we'll get to in a second, but but the uh, one of the things that he says is, um, do you really think Congress won't act if these horrible things happen? Millions uninsured. I mean, you think. Right. And and really makes a little crack. He says, "Well, this Congress, your your honor." And then there's laughter in the courtroom. And right. Scalia doesn't really take the bait. He just says, "Yeah, any Congress, I don't care." And then there's been some criticism of whether really should have slammed Congress like that. But um, this is another thing that we all know that I I don't know. Maybe if it's bad enough, Congress will do something. But uh, you, you, it's like, has anybody <laughs> was anybody around for the fiscal cliff? 
drama <laughs> with Congress, right. and you know, where, where nobody wanted the, the spending cuts that were going to go into place, and you and thought, look, well, the, they had to do something. They didn't. Isn't the best evidence that Congress won't move to fix it the fact that they haven't already? Well, the court granted review a number of months ago. Yeah. The, what's at stake has been clear for even longer because people were talking about this at the circuit court level that it had these consequences. So once the Supreme Court grants review in the case and it becomes that much more likely a prospect that the challengers will win and that the statute will be interpreted in this way to deny subsidies to anyone getting insurance in the exchanges run by the federal government, um, given how catastrophic it would be, you would say, well, we can't take that risk. We need to moot the case by amending the statute. I mean, it, it absolutely doesn't mean that. We don't want the court to create that mistake. You wouldn't stand around and wait. You would just fix it. Yeah. I, so let's just, and the fact that they haven't is an indication that they're not capable of doing so in the current environment. Well, or it's a, it's kind of Congress represents a locus of negotiation and both sides still have divergent understandings of the likely outcomes here, right? And so they have divergent views of the leverage that each has. And so that, that's a, that's a, that's one explanation. Um, I just don't think it's applicable here that, that the issue is they don't yet understand their, their, fi- the final round leverage. But uh, I think they, I think people understand precisely what it is and there will be no effort to fix it on the on the side of the party that has for years been saying we want to get rid of this statute root and branch right they have incentives not to do it i get that but i also get that democrats have incentives not to do anything for a number of reasons first of all they really i mean I think, but since uh, November, they haven't been in a position to do anything. They're not in the majority they, anymore. Yeah, but they can obstruct. I mean, so it's – I think that um, – Wait a minute. So and the administration – the, 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 the Republican leadership in the Senate and the House would have tried to pass a statute fixing the problem and they would no, have been opposed? I'm, I know what I'm saying is that there has been uh, – that neither side has an incentive to negotiate whether the White House or congressional Democrats or anyone because of their – different understandings about where where they should place leverage. And so, for example, um, if I'm the White House right now, right, and I think this is a crazy interpretation, I want and I want to say there's no plan B, right? Because they're really, you know, without congressional action, there, there really isn't one. They can't just fix this, right? Um, but I also do not want to give the Republicans a pound of flesh in exchange for doing what I think is already there in the statute. So I want the Supreme Court to be staring down you know, staring down this train wreck that they're going to create and think long and hard about it because I think I can win, right? Um, the Republicans, do they really have an incentive to fix Obamacare? I mean, maybe they have an incentive to use the word fix. I, I don't know. I mean, I object to the whole notion of the word fix here for one because I don't think there's well, anything there's, broken about it. Correct. Right? I agree. And, and, <laughs> and that's one of the things that keeps appearing in the argument. It's like, you know, right. sloppy drafting, fix, et cetera. All I mean, these the things. The only sense think, in which it would need to be a fix is if the Supreme Court breaks the statute, can Congress fix it? Right. And the answer to that is yes. Congress can, has the power to do they it. They have the power to do it. Right. I'm Will not going to fix it. Probably not. In fact, almost certainly not. Yeah, what happens though? In in because the states that are going to be harmed are the ones that are the anti Obamacare states, and right. so I think they'll very. I think you know what I actually think will happen is the Supreme Court would stay the mandate despite the fact that it doesn't not clear they have the power to to do that um, because it requires spending that they say that the Congress did not 
<laughs> did not enact. Right. Um, but, but they will do something like that. And the states will come into line pretty quickly and create their own exchanges. Mm. You know, because yeah. like, uh, you know, I, I, I actually don't think that I don't think the challenges are going to win. Oh, I don't think so either. Um, I, 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 I don't think so either. I, it's the ground for that. That is the thing. Now, so right. here's the, let's move to the interpretation point. Okay. Um, the key is if you think, um, uh, you know, w- w- how could you possibly think this statute <laughs> is clear in, 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 re- in restricting, um, especially in other, when other parts of the statute say that, um, uh, the qualified, uh, what does it say? Qualified individuals are, are persons residing in the state that established the exchange, right? And qualified individuals are the ones who are able to buy on the, on the exchanges, right? Well, that's actually an issue. Uh, and so the argument is that if exchange established in the state is, is, you know, so if an exchange is established by the federal government, there are no qualified individuals living in that state. And therefore there are no buyers on the federal exchange. That seems weird. It does. Bless you. Thank you. Uh, that that seems really weird. And the reason not to interpret the statute that way. Yeah, and then Alito suggests, well, maybe you know, just because uh, just because you're not a qualified individual, <laughs> just because you're not a qualified individual, right, doesn't mean you can't buy on the exchange. It just means that the state doesn't have to let you buy on the exchange, or the federal government doesn't ha- have to let you buy. So maybe you know, to which point really says. Um, am I just repeating the argument here? Yeah. Yeah, this sucks. Should we even do this show? (laughs) Well, until just this moment. I haven't had enough coffee. What? I haven't had enough coffee. Uh, Until just that moment, I thought we were doing great. Yeah, I don't, I don't feel it. No. I'm going to cut this part. (laughs) I'd like to, so here's what I'd like. I'd like us to talk about one and only one more thing. And it is this. Uh, the other thing that I think is somewhat shocking about, uh, all, well, shocking but not surprising, about Justice Kennedy's reaction to all this. That's not what I want to talk about, by the way. But let's hear, you go ahead, go ahead ante up, okay. and, and I'll, I'll add my ante to the list. And, okay. Yeah. Um, is the, is that thinking that what's important about this case is federalism. The reason why I find that shocking is because I think we're reaching this point, uh, given the the federalism issue uh, with Medicaid expansion in the first Obamacare case. What's, what seems very troubling to me about the fact that Justice Kennedy is so taken with this way of thinking about things is we're looking at these very important national solutions to national problems. <coughs> and the court seems bent on making it harder and harder for the national government to establish directly its connections and relations with, with the citizens of this country, separate and apart from the states. And I think that's really disturbing uh, because I think we've been down that road before uh, in ways that were very unproductive. Well, and then in fact, the Reconstruction Amendments are about establishing national citizenship separate and apart from state citizenship, and that the federalism issue 
can be wholesome and healthy and great. But when it becomes so large that it starts to occlude that relationship between the national government and the individual citizen, that the, there's real mischief a, a, a foot. Uh, and, and I feel like we're, we're well into that territory here. Yeah. I, and look, I'm not a huge fan of the New York against the United States and the Prince stuff. I mean, I'm, so I'm not going to jump on that bandwagon other than to say that it seems to be the conventional wisdom and seems to be the law that Congress can't have done just what they did in 1311B and said states, you have to establish an exchange, right? Um, it seems like they can't require that legislative action by the states. Indeed. And they were given a choice. Yes. Well, right. but, here, and, but this is the better version of the federalism argument, right? So suppose that Congress passed a law saying either you establish an exchange or you give up your sovereignty altogether, <laughs> right? Like that's not a real choice, right? Of course not. Uh, okay. So, and, and I'm not – right. Uh, so, and so I understand the, the argument that there needs to be real choice. Right. And suppose that we um, interpreted the statute as the challengers want and we don't – and so we say that uh, – you know, if the state doesn't establish an exchange, then the federal government establishes an exchange with no customers uh, that doesn't work and um, create and all kinds of problems. Is that a real choice? Um, I think a good reason not to interpret the statute that way is that it's absurd. And and this is one of the doctrines that Scalia rejects, right? This right. like absurdity doctrine. But right. um, uh but that's but but there might be a federalism reason to say that 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 seems weird that you know you you can't if you if you believe that you can't control the state's legislative actions in this way by making them establish exchanges just directly boy then how can you say how could you pass a law saying states either you establish an exchange or we will directly establish chaos like that you know seems like maybe too much coercion the, I agree and of that's the kind not that my even, problem yeah. my problem is that 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 to think that this was the most important lens through which to view the whole issue. Because when it, you don't need to. You can simply say that the national government, precisely in respect, of the, in respect for the states, gives states the legitimate choice. And the alternative isn't, we will destroy the insurance markets in your state. Yeah, Quite the contrary. It's, okay, if you decide you don't want to do it, we'll run the state exchange. And people will, of course, be eligible for the same subsidies that they are under right. exchange. And, and see, what you're getting at is the very reason I found the argument somewhat shocking is that he just seemed to – and a lot of people seem to buy that there's a problem with the statute, that there really is – like to, to interpret and, this thing to say that the federal exchanges are basically the exchange established by the state as a term of art is some kind of weird – like we'd have to stretch to do that in the when same in fact, way. It's not weird at all. It's not weird. That's the thing. I can't get my mind it's around. It's not weird for the very reason that he is concerned or says he is concerned, which right. is this federalism issue. Right. right. So it's it, you can you can have the federalism perspective that puts everything in its proper place and, right. is, and is exactly why this isn't troubling. Right. When it's read in the straightforward way that it should be read. Or you can have the issue of it where it's not there's there's sort of an anti-federalist hiding behind every tree and bush waiting to jump out and, and mesh with your stuff. And, right? yeah. and it's freakish. And that's why I'm disturbed by it. Yeah. And the because if you're looking for that kind of trouble, I got sure always going to find it. Yeah. And, and they to, to bolster the the so, so, you know, how could someone think that you need this? Right. That's the, really the question. How can you think that the text is messed up enough? Right. And and there are a couple of ways some of and, and I think that really did an excellent job of completely destroying 
one set of ways, right? So one set of ways is to say, well, Congress knew how to how to uh, how to um, uh, make these exchanges equivalent when it wanted to, because it did so with the territories. Like you know, it said that a territorial exchange is an exchange established by the state for purposes something like that, right? So it, it did that in some places in the act. Why didn't it do that here? And part of the answer is that this this restriction, apparent restriction to exchanges established by the states for purposes of subsidies was in the section 36B about taxes and stuff, right? So it's not exactly the same. Um, but the other things that they point to, which are kind of the obligations put on states with respect to um, exchanges established by the state, these were mostly illusory and, and, and really said none of these anomalies are actually anomalies. And the one that Alito threw at him, he completely destroyed, right? Which is saying, yes, this puts a unilateral obligation on existing state agencies, which we know already exist, to interact with the state exchange in a particular way. And it, per- it works perfectly with federal exchanges. Uh, there are rules implementing it and states are following those rules. And then the argument got into whether or not those rules were really the law or whether the statute was the law. But at that point, I think they completely lost this thing because the statute requires some kind of cooperation with respect to the exchange. It didn't matter whether the feds are running it or not, right? So, so there's that, right? But the, 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 the core to this thing and the only reason I wanted to talk about this today, <laughs> we're an hour into it, right, um, is Scalia's theory of interpretation, which appears to work. What I, I, what I said- Oh, is this the fourth category? Finally? Yeah, this we're is the fourth category, it? yeah. Oh, I've been waiting. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see if you I agree. Thought if I asked a bunch of times, you wouldn't. It wouldn't happen. So I didn't ask, but I really have wanted to hear it. Well, so Scalia seems to think that um, it's okay to interpret part of a statute to work a homicide on another part of a statute, <laughs> <laughs> right? right? And right. where it where it's clear, and and I, I don't really get why he thinks this. Um, so he he starts with something which is, sounds really typically Scalian, right? Which is that it's not what Congress intended. It's what they wrote that we're interpreting, right? And that's consistent with textualism rather than intentionalism as a, as a way of interpreting statutes, sure. right? Because, and, and you might have different reasons for saying, we're not going to look at what Congress intended because that'll make us look at Extrain, external evidence about what they intended, like legislative history, right. what what some of them said, you know, to the press and other things. Right. And there are lots of dangers with that, right? And so, we want to make Congress accountable to its to the people. We want to keep us, the court, within our prescribed area, sure. right? And a way of accomplishing that accountability is to um, uh, interpret just what they wrote, mm-hmm. the text, right? Yeah. And so. You don't get to write text which says one – you don't get to tell the people one thing and then write down something else. We're going to keep you accountable for what you for what you wrote. The people will then know you're accountable for what you wrote and then hopefully they will report on what you wrote and people will vote based on what you wrote, right? Um, it all seems – All sounds pretty good. All sounds, all sounds pretty good. Um, and so if what they wrote is clear, he says, right, um, then you have to interpret it that way even if it would create a statute which is totally unworkable, right? So the idea is that Congress is capable of passing statutes which are a mess, which do nothing or cause chaos. And if that's what they've done, the court has to enforce that thing. Um, and so this is, uh, 
This is beyond textualism because textualism says you look at the whole statute and you try to make sense of it, right? Right. And Scalia is saying if there is isolated text in one place, which could be read as clear, right? Because if it could be read as clear, there will be some judge who reads it as clear, right? I don't read it as clear in this case. I, I, I Well, actually, I do. The other way. I read it clearly the other way in right. the Kagan-Clerk way, right? But, right? but if he can read it as clear in the other way, right, um, then regardless of what happens in the rest of the statute, right, you have to read that clear portion, again, to, to basically murder the rest of the statute, <laughs> Right <laughs> now, I see this is not textualism anymore because textualism agree. says we look at the text of the whole statute. Right, the text it, is in a context. Right, textualism doesn't deny context. Right, because because statutes are information. Right, and this is a human enterprise. And information means we have a speaker, right. some some data, and then an, an interpreter. Right, yeah. and the whole purpose of the text is to communicate between people. Correct. Right, and yeah, the the statute is not the result of someone dropping a keyboard. Right. Right. It's an act of communication. No matter how, and really, you know, Scalia says, I think his theory here is that this was, didn't go through the usual, usual processes. This was a hack job to this get it together the last minute. That's, that's a bunch of craziness. Well, really says actually this particular set, you know, whatever your overall view about how the statute was passed, there was, this went through a proper order. Yeah. It didn't go through conference in all the same way. Right, there were many hearings. There were many there hearings. And, et cetera. Yeah, so it was on C-SPAN. He said it was on C-SPAN, et cetera. Right. That's a myth. Um, so this doesn't resemble to me, this particular theory, if you were to go with it, doesn't sound like textualism to me. It sounds like a particular brand of text, such, such a particular brand of textualism that it disconnects the statute from its text because it doesn't, no longer is textualism associated with a speaker and a listener, right? right. There's a reason to look at the text because it's the best evidence of what the speaker was saying at the time, right? And we have concerns that what this that everybody is on the same page about what the speaker meant. Right. And so intentionalism allows us to pick one intention over others. That's bad, et cetera. So you can anyway, think about all this, right? Yeah. Um so this is not that anymore. This is text disconnected from any conceivable right. speaker and listener. This is just raw text being interpreted against the speaker in a way that we know that the speaker could not have possibly intended because you know, it's it, at least overall, right? right. So I think this is nihilism. We've got textualism, interpretivism, uh, intentionalism, purposivism, and now add to that list nihilism. And I and I like it. Uh, I like your word because uh, I think it captures it. I think another phrase you could use is anarcho-libertarian IED textualism. It's looking at the statute as basically um, a field where you bury improvised explosive devices. <laughs> and yeah. uh, and it, and you and you know someone will walk on it at some point. Uh, of course, as you've said, right? If right. someone could read it that way, someone will read it that way. Right. Um, but that that's, that's ultimately the sort of game that's being played uh, is uh, this thing is built to detonate. Right. Uh, on some poor unsuspecting person. Yeah. Uh, but that's essentially the enterprise. And, the, and it is incredibly perverse. It's, I was trying to think in the course of the, after hearing, but it after reading in, the argument. But it's an libertarian perspective. It, it, There's a, there have been cases where Judge Easterbrook has talked this way about statutes that sort of, uh, and it, and it rejects the absurdity canon. It, it objects, uh, it, it rejects uh, any sort of uh, constructive role between a legislature and a judiciary, right? Where, right. where healthy textualism that looks at context and that takes away from 
the idea that, look, if we interpreted it that way, it would be absurd. Well, that's a really great piece of evidence that that's not actually how it should be interpreted. Right. And right, and where instead you say, oh, I embrace the absurdity. This just seems to me, yeah, well, but this seems to step beyond just the rejection of the absurdity canon. The absurdity canon being that, you know, if an interpretation would lead to absurd results, avoided. that's an interpretation to be rejected and avoided, Correct. right? And 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 Scalia does have problems with that canon. He has, you know, for yeah. a very long time. As, and there are, and, there, as giving, and it is a conceptually challenging, there's a great literature right. about it. It is a conceptually challenging thing. And he does that as giving license to, uh, um, he, he rejects it as, um, as, you know, that, that can't, there's a, there's a kind of a short gap between using the absurdity canon and then using interpretation as a tool to get to outcomes the judges want. Right. Because, hey, if I don't want you it, it's an unreasonable it. outcome and I call it absurd and then Correct. I can get where I want to go. Right. And then I convert you know, I convert statutory interpretation to a kind of common law, you know, judge made law where I just use the right. statute as cases to be distinguished. You know, I get that. And, and this problem, is a step beyond course, that. The problem with that approach is that, you know, ultimately will will is there any way to. Is there anything that would prevent bad judging from engage, from bad judges from engaging in bad judging? And the answer is no. Yeah. Right. The, the the solution to that problem is pick better judges. Well, the other thing Rather is... Rather than thinking you could adopt some methodology that would take a bad judge and make him do a good job. Or right. Or do a good job, because there isn't. Yeah. But there's also, there's, there's also a difference between... And he's living proof of that. Between scrutinizing statutes when the court's applying the Constitution and interpreting the statute... Um, interpreting a statute afresh without that constitutional review... And um, I, there was a blog post I read about this. I'm not going to be able to link it up this week. I'll give them credit next week. Uh, it was a really good blog post about like how kind of the interpretation, the interpretive methods, which have kind of been ginned up for kind of constitutional interpretation of statutes is being confused here with, with this other one. And I have another way of looking at it than that blog post, but which gets at a similar idea. And that's when, when the Supreme Court is reviewing a statute under the Constitution for, for a constitutional fit, right? It is the agent for an institution who has authority over those statutes, namely the framers or the court itself as an agent of the Constitution, right? The Constitution is authoritative over and above statutes, right? Right. And so the Supreme Court must scrutinize statutes, at least in some way, you know, the level of scrutiny can vary, right? But the the, the statutes are, are, are beholden to, to constitutional fit, right? Yes. When the Supreme Court is interpreting a statute to see what it means and how it applies, the Supreme Court is in an inferior position to Congress and to the statute, right? right? right. It is, it has, a, the statute is authoritative. And in fact, that's the very basis for Scalia's rejection of the kind of the common law method of statutory interpretation right. for his embrace of textualism, right? Right, to what be a, a more faithful agent. Exactly. What a hash this nihilistic can, uh, method of interpretation makes of that, right? right? Which is to say, you know, in a world where we all know, and whatever, you know, Gruber, whatever Jonathan Gruber may have said, and whatever kind of alternate history is trying to, we, we we know that people thought this is how it worked. We have many pieces of evidence for that, even if you think that there's some, like, small problem with the text here, which I do not, right? Um, wh- what a hash it makes of that, of, of that kind of authority to say that Congress is going to be stuck with the problems that it created by what you what it best is inartful drafting in this one by not including the by not including the language you used for federal territories in the tax provision here by saying also we mean federal right. exchanges i mean that it's 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 almost inconceivable to me that you know these are just at really cross purposes um what else was i going to say that um 
Uh, yeah, there was something else. I'm I'm kind of getting. I need more coffee. You've mentioned that. I just I did not get enough. I, so did I not, think we're done. I did not make a full cup. No, there was something else. We can't end here. There's there's something else. Are you sure? Yes. Um. Mm, mm. Should we go back to our tones? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think we're done. I think we've been at this for a while, and I think we've said a lot of really interesting stuff. I I agree with the first in, thing in you as, said, and not the second. As, well, in as much as I have found the many of the things you have said to be quite interesting. Yeah. So I think it's a great, that's a great place to leave it. Oh, I, I know one other thing I did want to say. Um, I was thinking this week as I, after I read the transcript and I saw like the kinds of arguments which were being made to make it seem unclear. Right. That if you were to make a caricature of the interpreter who was using this, what I would call the nihilistic canon, which yeah. is to use isolated bits of text to defeat a relatively clear textualist message right, right? uh i was trying to think and maybe you know this is why i wanted to ask you about it of like it feels like there's some kind of cartoon character who has like one of those curly mustaches or something like that who's like uh whose like whole purpose is to like you know who swindles people by um by like listening to what they say you know, and, and, and recording like, like who's like, like a land deal. And you just are, you know, the person is going to say the wrong thing and you're just kind of waiting for them to say that one thing. And then it records like record a deal that accomplishes the opposite of what they wanted to accomplish. Isn't there a story with that or a movie or something? Well, it's, um, I don't know. I can't remember now whether you've read the Harry Potter books or not, but there's a, I read the first one with my kid. So you didn't encounter the house elves. Oh, I, I saw, I saw the movies. Oh, okay. So, uh, it doesn't come through in the movies, though. Dobby is the good is the house elf who befriends Harry Potter and mm-hmm. helps him, and Potter actually frees him from the Malfoy family. And yeah, he's Gollum with the with the bigger ears, right? It's a total misreading. So um, <laughs> I'm just saying how he looks. But yeah. there's another uh, house elf uh-huh. called, and his name is Creature. Yeah, and Creature is a nihilistic literalist. Mm-hmm. So he and house elves are very powerful magically. They can accomplish enormous magic quite powerfully, more powerful than wizards. Interestingly, uh, but creature is a literalist, and so he screws with people by doing. Oh, but you said that, right? Right. right. You would. That's what you want. What you requested was this thing, not that thing, right? And of course, he knows the whole time that that's what he's doing, right? It, being a giant jackass, in other words. Right. It's using the nihilistic canon of interpretation uh, in order to give yourself more power, in order to right. uh, in order to screw with somebody, right. you know, at the, at best, and to ruin their life at worst. Like in one of the in the in the literary version of this, right? But right. but this now, nihilistic canon, what power it gives to judges, what power it gives. Like you can look at the whole, you can look at the statute and just locate little landmines and use it to explode the entire statute. It right. gives power to basically. Reverse Congress, and it's uh, on and non-constitutional it's ironic, grounds. And it's ironic that it's it is um, it is another embodiment of the absurdity doctrine, but it's an it's an it's an embodiment of it that embraces the absurdity rather than rejecting it. Right. But it's but it's equally bound up with the notion of absurdity. Right. But it's to carry out an absurdity to say 
you know, ah, I'm going to punish you by force feeding you your own absurdity. And 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 the re- that equally requires you to call to to name it that. Yeah, and the reason I found it shocking is because that doesn't promote accountability. It doesn't seem to fulfill no. Scalia's like democratically motivated textualism, which I can we we which I have more of a problem because of the I think the possibilities of textualism right. than I do with that fourth level right. set of reasons, which with which I agree, right? And and I think that. There are aspects of it which have a lot to recommend them. I love teaching uh, Scalia's theory in like legislation, regulation, and other classes because it right. just is is fascinating. There's, and like I said, it has a lot to recommend it, and it's fun. And the Scalia Posner debate on this is really fun. No, but this, but this is, not, is not that. Not right? at all. No, this is the equivalent of you know the beatings will continue until morale improves. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's it, it's a way to say I can punish you into the rectitude I require. Hmm. Uh. And, in a context where that the, the framing it that way makes sure the rectitude right. will never arrive. Part of what we're saying, though, is like it's a paradox. whether this is a problem or not and whether this reallocates power to courts or not in ways w- in, in, which contravenes Scalia's, I think, level four theory of interpretation. Right. Uh, that kind of depends on how often the chance to interpret stray text to defeat the the larger textualist purpose Right. He would object to my phrasing there, I know, but you know what I mean, the larger textualist message. Um, uh, how often does that happen? And my point here is that, yes, this is a complicated big statute. We have lots of complicated big statutes these days, and, and, right. and a lot of them uh, are embraced by conservatives, right? Uh, and some of them are not. But It's funny, but most of them were passed a long time ago. Yeah, and well, we don't have a lot of statutes that are new these days. <laughs> Well, but, but that's but that that matters, right? Because that means the shakeout period that we're in now with the Affordable Care Act happened in the late seventies, or maybe even early seventies, with a number of these other very complex right. statutes. When I don't think there were advocates of this kind of nihilism in the judiciary, well, as there now yeah. are. And and I just 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 to right, and I want to I brought that up just to bring it back around to where we started, right? That my worry about this giant new weapon, right, is that it's not going to be, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be the unusual statute which embeds a, um, some local text which defeats the larger purpose or which causes a problem. Right. In any sufficiently complicated statute, you might be able to find this. Now, that's an empirical judgment, but one reason to think that that's true is that this case is, is, uh, is, is they found it in this case because of the highly motivated character of the actors involved. Right. right? They, there was a group of people who hated Obamacare and went through it with a fine-tooth comb to find problems. And this is one that stuck. Yes. Um, that's sur- my understanding as well. And again, that's not to attribute like motives to Jonathan Adler on this or anybody else. I mean, you know, if you don't like the statute, of course, you're looking for what – you're going to be looking for things that you think are problematic. There's not necessarily anything wrong with that. Like you want to – you know, I, it's the – Embrace of the canon, which would give voice to, uh, you know, that larger disruption using these hidden landmines that is problematic. Yes. Not that like someone who doesn't like the statute is going through it and finding ways that it doesn't apply in order to minimize the damage that they see in the statute, sure. right? Or to see whether there's a constitutional problem. I think Fair that's point. entirely legitimate. Right. Um, but we've gone down the road here where if that theory and oral argument is embraced, I think it's, it, to me, it's like the... It's 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 it, like I said, it's nihilism, but it's also like the death of textualism as a serious enterprise. Like if you can't separate textualism from what that statement would do, right? Then I think the jig is up, which is unfortunate. 
Yeah. Because there is a great deal in textualism that um, is beneficial and encourages productive thinking. And so, yeah, it would be, that would be a real loss for, yeah. for it to get sucked down into the, the, the drain of this nihilistic thinking. And, and as someone who's not a textualist, um, I wouldn't describe I, myself as one either, but, but I, I very see a much, lot of benefit in it. Yeah, I mean, I, my thinking has been enhanced immensely by Absolutely. engagement with that doctrine and seeing how parts of it are, you know, exactly what I think. Because I think the data exchange between institutions is enormously important in governing ourselves, right. right? I mean, that is, that text is, you know, whatever the text is, whether it's judicial opinions or statutes, that's what essentially the law is, right? right? It is the, it's the data on which the law runs, right? Even if the institutions themselves, I think, are very important in that, yeah, right? It's the, and it's, and in that way, it is a focal point around which people are trying to coordinate their efforts. Yeah. And if you make it incapable of playing that role, it yeah. can't be a focal point for coordinating efforts all it can do is blow up in your hands. That's a that's very bad, I think. I think we should end it there. Cool. I gotta get on with things. Have fun. Um we'll 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 see everybody next week. Indeed.